I'd like to take a minute before this episode to thank you, the listeners, for patiently waiting for this episode. I enjoyed taking the time off to spend with my family and my newborn son. I am eager to get back to work on the show, and I will do my best to keep on the time frame I have set for recording and releasing. Now on with the show. On this episode, we are going to do something a little different. We are going to look at four cases instead of one. Four cases that are different, but have a similar theme involved. That theme is Hollywood and stardom. There is a high price to fame, and sometimes that price can be a person's life. So tonight, on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you the cases of child star Judith Barcy, comedic actor Phil Hartman, singer Sam Cooke, and Playboy Playmate and actress Dorothy Stratton, The Hollywood Murders. Eva Barcy was born June 6, 1978, in Los Angeles, California, to parents Joseph and Maria Barcy. Barcy's father fled communist Hungary after the 1956 Soviet occupation. He relocated to New York in 1964 and then to California, where he met Maria Verakez, also a Hungarian immigrant escaping the Soviet occupation. They married and moved to Los Angeles, California, where in 1978, Judith was born. Maria began grooming her daughter to become an actress, and at the age of five, she was discovered at a skating rink. Barcy's first role was in Fatal Vision, playing Kimberly McDonald. She went on to appear in more than 70 commercials and guest roles on television. As well as her career in television, she appeared in several films, including Jaws the Revenge, and provided the voices of Ducky in The Land Before Time and Anne Marie in All Dogs Go to Heaven. My name's Littlefoot. Mine is Ducky. Yep, that is what it is. Yep, yep, yep. Don't step on a crack or you'll fall and break your back. (laughs) By the time she started fourth grade, Barcy was earning an estimated $100,000 a year, 
which helped her family buy a three-bedroom house in West Hills, Los Angeles. As she was short for her age, she stood three foot eight inches at the age of ten. She began receiving hormone injections at UCLA to encourage her growth. Her petiteness led to casting directors casting her as children that were younger than her actual age. Her agent was quoted in the Los Angeles Times as saying that she was 10, but she was playing as 7 or 8-year-olds. As Judah's career success increased, Joseph began increasingly angry and would routinely threaten to kill himself and his wife and daughter. His alcoholism worsened, causing the police to arrest him three separate times for drunk driving. In December of 1986, Maria reported his threats and physical violence towards her to the police. After police found no physical signs of abuse, she decided not to press charges against him. After the incident with police, Joseph Barcy reportedly stopped drinking, but continued to threaten Maria and Judah. His various threats included cutting their throats, as well as burning down the house. He reportedly hid a telegram informing Maria that a relative in Hungary had died, in an attempt to prevent her from leaving the United States with Judah. The physical violence continued, with Judith telling a friend that her father threw pots and pans at her, resulting in a nosebleed. As a result of his abuse, Judith began gaining weight and exhibit disturbing behavior, which included plucking out her eyelashes and pulling out her cat's whiskers. After breaking down in front of her agent during a singing audition for All Dogs Go to Heaven, Barcy was taken by Maria to a child psychologist who identified severe physical and emotional abuse and reported her findings to Child Protective Services. The investigation was dropped after Maria assured the caseworker that she intended to begin divorce proceedings against Joseph and that she and Judith were going to move to Panorama City apartment that she had recently rented as a daytime haven from him. Friends urged her to follow through with the plan, but she resisted reportedly because she was afraid that she would lose the family home and belongings. Judith Barcy was last seen riding her bike on the morning of July 25, 1988. That evening, Joseph shot her in the head while she was sleeping and then murdered Maria. He spent the next two days wandering around the house and said during a phone conversation with Judith's agent the next night that he intended to move out for good and just needed time to, quote, say goodbye to my little girl. Unquote. He then poured gasoline on the bodies and set them on fire. After incinerating the bodies, he went to the garage and shot himself in the head with a 32 caliber pistol. On August 9, 1988, Barcy and her mother were interred at the Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Los Angeles. Barcy's final film, All Dogs Go to Heaven, which she provided the speaking voice of Anne Marie, was released in November of 1989. Don Bluth, the director of the Lamb Before Time, and All Dogs Go to Heaven, described her as, quote, absolutely astonishing. She understood verbal direction, even for the most sophisticated situations, unquote. And he intended to feature her extensively in the future productions. The end credit song, Love Survives, was dedicated in her memory.
Phil Hartman was born on September 24, 1948, in Branford, Ontario, Canada. He was the fourth of eight children of Doris Marguerite and Rupert Lomberg Hartman. His parents were Catholic and raised their children in that faith. As a child, Hartman found affection hard to earn and stated, quote, I suppose I didn't get what I wanted out of my family life, so I started seeking love and attention elsewhere, unquote. Hartman was 10 years old when his family moved to the United States. They first lived in Connecticut and later moved to the West Coast. There, Hartman attended Westchester High School and frequently acted as the class clown. After graduating, Hartman studied art at Santa Monica City College, dropping out in 1969 to become a roadie with a rock band. He returned to school in 1972, this time studying graphic arts at California State University, Northridge. He developed his own graphic arts business, which he operated on his own, creating over 40 album covers for bands including Poco and America, as well as advertising and the logo for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. In the late 1970s, Hartman made his first television appearance on an episode of The Dating Game. He won, but was stood up by his date. Working alone as a graphic artist, Hartman frequently amused himself with flights of voice fantasies. Citing the need for more social outlet for his talents, Hartman, age 27, began in 1975 to attend evening classes run by the California-based improvisational comedy group The Groundlings. While watching one of the troupe's performances, Hartman impulsively decided to climb up on stage and join the cast. After several years of training, paying his way by redesigning the group's logo and merchandise, Hartman formally joined the cast of The Groundlings. By 1979, he had become one of the show's stars. Hartman met comedian Paul Rubens, and the two became friends, often collaborating on writing and comedic material. Together, they created the character Pee Wee Herman and developed The Pee Wee Herman Show. Hartman played Captain Carl on The Pee Wee Herman Show and returned in the role for the children's show Pee Wee's Playhouse. Hartman co-wrote the script of the 1985 feature film, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and had a cameo role as a reporter in the film. Oh, Pee-wee! Did you ever think of all the things that are wrong with women? Like what? Well, they live on land, for one thing. <laughs> and they're all soft. Like jellyfish? Yeah, just like a jellyfish. <laughs> and what are women like more than anything else in the world? Charge accounts. <laughs> oh, I was thinking of flowers. They even smell like flowers. Hey, flowers grow on land, too. That's right. I never thought of that one. Oh, women. No, women. 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 Dames. Dames. Women. 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 <laughs> In addition to his work with Rubens, Hartman recorded a number of voiceover roles. These included appearances on The Smurfs, Challenge of the Gobots, The Thirteen Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, and voicing character Henry Mitchell and George Wilson on Dennis the Menace. Additionally, Hartman developed a strong persona, providing voiceovers for advertisements. 
After appearing in the 1986 films Jumping Jack Flash and Three Amigos, Hartman successfully auditioned for NBC's variety show Saturday Night Live and joined the cast and the writing staff. In his eight seasons with the show, Hartman became known for his impressions and performed over 70 different characters. Um, do you favor the uh, decision to send military forces to Somalia? Hmm. That's a good question. Yes, I do. Let me tell you why. See, right now, we're sending food to Somalia. But it's not getting to the people who need it because it's being intercepted by warlords. <laughs> and it's not just us. It's other countries, too. Like your McNugget is released from Great Britain to Somalia, intercepted by warlords. Hartman became one of the stars of the NBC sitcom News Radio in 1995, portraying radio news anchor Bill McNeil. He signed up after being attracted by the show's writing and the use of the ensemble cast, and joked that he based McNeil on himself with, quote, any ethics or character removed, unquote. Although the show was critically acclaimed, it was never a ratings hit, and cancellation was a regular threat. After the completion of the fourth season, Hartman commented, quote, We seem to have a limited appeal. We're on the edge here, not sure where we're going to be picked up or not, unquote, but added that he was 99% sure the series would be renewed for a fifth season. Morning, Chief. Morning, Bill. So? Nope. Haven't had a drop of coffee. You, you smoked? Not at all. How you feeling? Well, I have a pounding headache and my arms feel like they're about 12 feet long but other than that i feel fine you i've been better coughed up something that looked like escargot this morning but i guess that's a good sign you don't mind do you oh oh gosh no bill please enjoy the old java jive chock full of nuts they should call it chock full of flavor Okay, uh, what the hell are you doing, Bill? Oh, come on, Dave. We went a good nine and a half hours. Must we continue this little charade? Come on, Bill. I'm doing this for you. We had an agreement. If you crack first, Dave, it won't make you any less of a man. I'm nowhere near cracking. Neither am I, my friend. Oh, Dave. And oh, Matthew, what is it now? For God's sake, no one's smoking, okay? What? what nothing! You know what we need around here is an anti-whining ordinance. So just sip your sniveling little lip and haul your skinny ass out of I don't think that qualifies as cracking, do you? No, no, no. Although the show was renewed for a fifth season, Hartman died before production began. Ken Tucker praised Hartman's performance as McNeil. Quote, a lesser performer would have played him as a variation on the Mary Tyler Moore show's Ted Baxter, because that's what Bill was on paper. But Hartman gave infinite variety to Bill's self-centeredness turning him devious, cowardly, squeamish, and foolishly bold from week to week, unquote. On the evening of May 27, 1998, Phil's wife, Bryn Hartman, visited the Italian restaurant Buca di Beppo in Encino, California, with producer and writer Christine Zander, who said she was, quote, in a good frame of mind, unquote. After returning to the couple's nearby home, Bryn had a heated argument with her husband, who threatened to leave her if she started to use drugs again, 
after which he went to bed. While Hartman slept, Bryn entered his bedroom sometime before 3 a.m. local time on May 28th with a 38 caliber handgun and fatally shot him twice in the head and once in his side. She was intoxicated and had recently taken cocaine. Bryn drove to the home of her friend Ron Douglas and confessed to the killing, but initially he did not believe her. The pair drove back to the house in separate cars, and Bryn called another friend and confessed a second time. Upon seeing Hartman's body, Douglas called 911 at 6.20 a.m. Police subsequently arrived and escorted Douglas and Hartman's two children from the premises, by which time Bryn had locked herself in the bedroom and committed suicide by shooting herself in the right eye. Los Angeles police stated Hartman's death was caused by, quote, domestic discord between the couple, unquote. A friend alleged that Bryn, quote, had trouble controlling her anger. She got attention by losing her temper, unquote. A neighbor of Hartman's told CNN reporters that the couple had been experiencing marital problems. Quote, it's been building, but I didn't think it would lead to this, unquote. And actor Steve Gutenberg said they had been, quote, a very happy couple and they always had the appearance of being well-balanced, unquote. Other causes for the incident were later suggested. Before committing the act, Bryn was taking an antidepressant drug Zoloft. A wrongful death lawsuit was filed in 1999 by Bryn's brother Gregory Amendahl against Pfizer, the drug's manufacturer, and her child psychiatrist, Arthur Sarosky, who provided samples of Zoloft to Bryn. Bryn's sister, Katherine Amendahl, and her brother-in-law, Mike Wright, raised the two Hartman children. Hartman's will stipulated that each child would receive their inheritance over several years after they turned 25. The total value of Hartman's estate was estimated at $1.23 million. In accordance with Hartman's will, his body was cremated by the Forest Lawn Memorial Park and Mortuary in Glendale, California, and his ashes were scattered over the Santa Catalina Islands, Emerald Bay. Samuel Cook was born in Clarksdale, Mississippi in 1931. He added an E to his last name in 1957 to signify a new start to his life. He was the fifth of eight children of Reverend Charles Cook and his wife Anne Marie. One of his younger brothers, L.C., later became a member of the doo-wop band Johnny Keys and the Magnificence. The family moved to Chicago in 1933, and Cook attended Wendell Phillips Academy High School the same school that Nat King Cole had attended a few years earlier. 
Sam Cooke began his career with his siblings in a group called The Singing Children when he was six years old. He first became known as the lead singer with the Highway QCs when he was a teenager, having joined the group at age 14. During this time, Cooke befriended fellow gospel singer and neighbor Lou Rawls, who sang in a rival gospel group. In 1950, Cooke replaced gospel tenor R.H. Harris as lead singer of the gospel group Soul Stirrers, founded by Harris, who had signed with Specialty Records on behalf of the group. Cook was often credited for bringing gospel music to the attention of younger crowd of listeners, mainly girls who would rush the stage when the Soul Stirrers hit the stage just to get a glimpse of Cook. Cook had 30 U.S. Top 40 hits between 1957 and 1964, plus three more posthumously. Major hits like You Send Me, A Change Is Gonna Come, Cupid, Chain Gang, Wonderful World, Another Saturday Night, and Twistin' the Night Away are some of his most popular songs. Twistin' the Night Away was one of his biggest selling albums. Twistin' the Night Away, yeah, twistin', twistin', everybody's feeling great. They're twistin', twistin', they're twistin' the night away. Cook was also among the first modern black performers and composers to attend to the business side of his musical career. He founded both a record label and a publishing company as an extension of his careers as a singer and composer. He also took an active part in the civil rights movement. Cook died at the age of 33 on December 11, 1964, in the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles, California. Answering separate reports of a shooting and a kidnapping at the motel, Police found Cook's body clad only in a sports jacket and shoes, but no shirt, pants, or underwear. He had sustained a gunshot wound to his chest, which was later determined to have pierced his heart. The motel's manager, Bertha Franklin, said she had shot Cook in self-defense after he broke into her office residence and attacked her. Her account was immediately disputed by Cook's acquaintances. The official police report states that Franklin fatally shot Cook who had checked in earlier that evening. Franklin said that Cook had broken into a manager's office apartment in a rage, wearing nothing but shoes and a sports coat, demanding to know the whereabouts of a woman who had accompanied him to the motel. Franklin said the woman was not in the office and that she told Cook this, but the enraged Cook did not believe her and violently grabbed her, demanding again to know the woman's whereabouts. According to Franklin, she grappled with Cook the two of them fell to the floor, and she then got up and ran to retrieve a gun. She said that then she fired at Cook in self-defense because she feared for her life. Cook was struck once in the torso. According to Franklin, he exclaimed, quote, Lady, you shot me, unquote, before mounting a last charge at her. She said she beat him over the head with a broomstick before he finally fell, mortally wounded by the gunshot. The motel's owner, Evelyn Carr, said that she had been on the telephone with Franklin at the time of the incident. Carr said that she overheard Cook's intrusion and the ensuing conflict and gunshot. She called the police to request that officers go to the motel, telling them that she believed a shooting had occurred. A coroner's inquest was convened to investigate the incident. The woman who had accompanied Cook to the motel was identified as L. Lisa Boyer, 
who had also called the police that night shortly before Carhead. Boyer had called from a telephone booth near the motel, telling them that she had just escaped being kidnapped. Boyer told the police that she had first met Cook earlier that night and had spent the evening in his company. She said that after they left a local nightclub together, she had repeatedly requested that he take her home, but he instead took her against her will to the Hacienda Motel. She said that once in the motel's room, Cook physically forced her onto the bed and that she was certain he was going to rape her. According to Boyer, when Cook stepped into the bathroom for a moment, she quickly grabbed her clothes and ran from the room. She said that in her haste, she had also scooped up most of Cook's clothing by mistake. She said she ran first to the manager's office and knocked on the door seeking help. However, she said that the manager took too long in responding. So, fearing Cook would soon be coming after her, she fled from the motel before the manager ever even opened the door. She said then she then put her clothing back on, hid Cook's clothing, and went to a telephone booth and called the police. Boyer's story is the only account of what happened between her and Cook that night. However, her story has long been called into question. Inconsistencies between her version of events and details reported by diners at Martignoni's restaurant, where Cook dined and drank earlier that evening, suggest that Boyer may have gone willingly to the motel with Cook, then slipped out of the room with his clothing in order to rob him, rather than to escape an attempted rape. Cook was reportedly carrying much more money at Matriani's than the $108 in cash found at his death scene, and Boyer was arrested for prostitution in January of 1965, though the charges was dismissed and she accrued no more notoriety. However, questions about Boyer's role were beyond the scope of inquest, the purpose of which was only to establish the circumstances of Franklin's role in the shooting. Boyer's leaving the motel room with almost all of Cook's clothing and the fact that tests showed Cook was inebriated at the time provided a plausible explanation to the inquest jurors for Cook's bizarre behavior and state of dress. In addition, because Carr's testimony corroborated Franklin's version of events, and because both Boyer and Franklin later passed a polygraph test, the coroner's jury ultimately accepted Franklin's explanation and returned a verdict of justifiable homicide. With that verdict, authorities officially closed the case on Cook's death. Some of Cook's family and supporters, however, have rejected Boyer's version of events, as well as those given by Franklin and Carr. They believe that there was a conspiracy to murder Cook, and that the murder took place in some manner entirely different from the three official accounts. Some people have speculated that Cook's manager, Alan Klein, might have had a role in his death. Klein owned Tracy's Limited, which ultimately owned all the rights to Cook's recording. No concrete evidence supporting a criminal conspiracy has been presented to date. Bertha Franklin said she received numerous death threats after the shooting of Cook. She left her position at the Hacienda Motel and did not publicly disclose where she had moved. After being cleared by the coroner's jury, she sued Cook's estate, citing physical injuries and mental anguish suffered as a result of Cook's attack. Her lawsuit sought $200,000 in compensatory and punitive damages. Barbara Womack countersued Franklin on behalf of the estate, seeking $7,000 in damages to cover Cook's funeral expenses. 
Eliza Boyer provided testimony in support of Franklin in the case. In 1967, a jury ruled in favor of Franklin on both counts and awarded her $30,000 in damages. Dorothy Stratton was born on February 28, 1960, in Vancouver, British Columbia, to Simon and Nellie Huga Stratton, who had immigrated from the Netherlands. In 1977, Stratton was attending Centennial High School in Coquitlam, British Columbia. Concurrently, she was working part-time at a local Dairy Queen, where she met 26-year-old Vancouver-area club promoter and pimp Paul Snyder, who began dating her. Snyder later had a photographer take professional nude photos of her, which were sent to Playboy magazine in the summer of 1978. She was under the age of 19, which is the legal age of majority in Canada, so she had to persuade her mother to sign the model release forms. In August of 1978, she moved to Los Angeles, where she was chosen as a finalist for the 25th anniversary Great Playmate Hunt. Snyder joined her in October and in June the following year they married. She became Playboy's Miss August in 1979 and began working as a bunny at the Playboy Club in Century City, Los Angeles. Hugh Hefner had high hopes Stratton could have meaningful crossover success as an actress. She featured in episodes of the television series Buck Rogers and Fantasy Island. She also had small roles in 1979 in Americathon and the roller disco comedy Skate Town, USA, and the lead role in the exploitation film Autumn Born. In 1980, she became Playboy's Playmate of the Year, with photography by Mario Casilli. Stratton also played the title role in the sci-fi parody Galaxina. You really are a lovely young lady. Thank you. I saw you, you were on the news last night, I think, uh, on the local newscast. When the, did you know, how, how long before did you know that you were selected as... Playmate of the Year. Um, well, we started shooting the issue sometime in October of 1979. Right. And we finished in March of 1980. Right. So we shot for quite a few months. Yeah. Hefner reportedly encouraged Stratton to sever ties with Snyder, calling him a, quote, hustler and a pimp, unquote. Roseanne Catton and other friends warned Stratton about Snyder's behavior. Stratton began an affair with Peter Bogdanovich while he was directing They All Laughed, intended as her first major studio film. Snyder hired a private detective to follow Stratton. They separated, and Stratton moved in with Bogdanovich, planning to file for divorce from Snyder. By August 1980, Snyder most likely believed that he had lost Stratton and what he called his, quote, rocket to the moon, unquote. On August 13, 1980, the day before Stratton was murdered, Snyder bought a used 12-gauge pump-action shotgun from a private seller he found in a local classified ad. 
Later that evening, in conversation with his friends, Snyder described how he had purchased a gun that day to finish his story by cryptically declaring that he was, quote, going to take up hunting, unquote. During the same conversation, barely more than 12 hours before the murder, an otherwise jovial Snyder casually brought up the subject of playmates who had unexpectedly died. In particular, he spoke of Claudia Jennings, an actress and former Playmate of the Year who had been killed in a car accident the year before. Snyder made several morbid remarks to his companions related to the problems at Playboy magazine caused by Jennings' death, including a comment about how the editors will pull nude photos of a dead Playmate from the next issue if there's time. Stratton arrived for her meeting with Snyder at his rented West Los Angeles house at approximately 12 noon on Thursday, August 14th. She had spent the morning conferring with her business manager, and one of the topics the pair discussed was the amount of property settlement the playmate would offer her estranged husband that afternoon. The police later found $1,100 in cash among Stratton's belongings in the house, which she had apparently brought for Snyder as a down payment. Towards the end of her morning meeting, Stratton's business manager made a fateful observation that his young client could avoid spending any more time with her husband by handing off the remaining separation and divorce negotiations to her lawyer. Stratton replied that the process would go easier if she dealt with Snyder personally, explaining that he was being nice about everything and finally adding, quote, I'd like to remain his friend, unquote. Snyder's two roommates had left in the morning, so the couple was alone when Stratton stepped into the house that she had shared with her husband until just a few months earlier. By all appearances, Stratton had spent some time in the living room, where her purse was found lying open, before she and Snyder went into his bedroom. By 8 o'clock that evening, both of the roommates had returned to the house. They saw Stratton's car parked out front and noted that Snyder's bedroom door was closed. Assuming that the couple had reconciled and wanted their privacy, the roommates spent the next several hours watching television in the living room. Alerted by Snyder's private detective, the roommates entered the bedroom shortly after 11 p.m. that night and discovered the bodies of Stratton and Snyder. Each had been killed by a single blast from Snyder's shotgun. Both bodies were nude. According to the police timeline, Snyder had shot Stratton that afternoon within an hour of her arrival at the house. Snyder then committed suicide approximately one hour after the murder. Sometime after midnight in the early morning of August 15th, the private detective telephoned the Playboy Mansion and told Hefner that Stratton had been murdered. Hefner then called Bogdanovich. After collapsing at the news, Bogdanovich was sedated. Stratton's mother was told of her daughter's death at her Vancouver area home later that morning by an RCMP Mountie. Stratton's body was cremated and the remains interred at the Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery in Los Angeles. The epitaph of Stratton's grave marker includes a passage chosen by Bogdanovich from Chapter 34 of Ernest Hemingway's novel, A Farewell to Arms.
as always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org backslash truecrimetrucker backslash. Also, if you would like to donate to the show and get yourself a True Crime Truckers Podcast sticker, go to www.patreon.com backslash truecrimetruckerspodcast. You can also find me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks with another case to present. So until then, stay safe.